Welcome to the Wausau Community Theater podcast production of Bram Stoker's Dracula, adapted by Duffy Lonick, with revisions by Chanel Vopel and Casey Hofer. Produced by Chanel Vopel, directed by Casey Hofer, sponsored by TDS Fiber and Central Concrete Cutting. This podcast is a fundraiser for the Wausau Community Theater, which has been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Please consider making a donation to Wausau Community Theater by going to www.wausaucommunitytheater.org and clicking Donate. And now, Episode 1 of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Jonathan Hawker's Journal, 30th June. These may be the last words I ever write in this diary. I slept till just before the dawn, and when I woke, I threw myself on my knees, for I determined that if death came, he should find me ready. I am in a sea of wonders. I, I doubt, I fear, I think strange things, which I dare not confess to my own soul. God, keep me, if only for the sake of those dear to me. 3rd May. I was being sent to Transylvania to finalize property purchases by a count that lived there. The impression I had was that I was leaving the west and entering the east. It was on the dark side of twilight when we got to Bistritz. Count Dracula had directed me to the Golden Hotel, which I found to my great delight to be thoroughly old-fashioned. I received a letter from the Count. My friend, welcome to the Carpathians. I am anxiously expecting you. Sleep well tonight. At three tomorrow, the diligence will start for Bukovina. The place on it is kept for you. At the Borgo Pass, my carriage will await you and bring you to me. I trust that your journey from London has been a happy one, that you will enjoy your stay in my beautiful land. Your friend, Dracula. 4th May. As I was leaving the hotel, an old woman came up to my room and said in a hysterical way, Must you go? Oh, young hair, must you go? I must go at once. I'm engaged in some very important business. Do you know what day it is? Yes, it's the 4th of May. Oh, yes, I know that. But do you know what day it is? I don't understand. It is the eve of St. George's Day. Do you know that tonight, when the clock strikes midnight, all evil things will have full sway? Do you know where you are going? What you are going to? Please do not go now. Wait a few days and then go. It will be safer for you. I thank you for your concern. But my duty is imperative and I must go. She dried her eyes and taking a crucifix from her neck, offered it to me. I did not know what to do. Being an English churchman, I've been taught to regard such things as idolatrous. But I didn't want to seem ungrateful. For your mother's sake. She put the crucifix around my neck and turned to leave. When I got in the coach, the driver had not taken his seat, and I saw him talking to the landlady. When we started, the crowd around the inn door all made the sign of a cross and pointed two fingers at me. A fellow passenger informed me that it was the ward against the evil eye. When it grew dark, there seemed to be some sense of excitement amongst the passengers. They kept speaking to the driver as though urging him to further speed. We were entering the Borgo Pass. There were dark, rolling clouds overhead, and in the air the heavy, oppressive sense of thunder. I was now myself looking out for the conveyance which was to take me to the Count. Each moment I expected to see the glare of lamps through the blackness, but all was dark. The passengers drew back with a sigh of gladness which seemed to mock my own disappointment. The driver, turning to me, said, There is no carriage here. The Herr is not expected after all. He will now come to Bukovina and return tomorrow or the next day. 
Whilst he was speaking, the horses began to neigh and snort and plunge wildly, so the driver had to hold them up. Then a chorus of screams from the passengers and a universal crossing of themselves. A calash with four horses drove up behind us, overtook us, and drew up beside the coach. I could see from the flash of our lamps that the horses were coal-black and splendid animals. They were driven by a tall man with a long brown beard and a great black hat, which seemed to hide his face from us. You are early tonight, my friend. The English hare was in a hurry. This is why, I suppose, you wished him to go on to Bukovina. You cannot deceive me, my friend. I know too much, and my horses are swift. He smiled as he spoke, and the lamplight fell on the hard-looking mouth with very red lips and sharp-looking teeth. Give me the hare's luggage. My bags were handed out to be put in the calash. Then I descended from the coach to the calash behind them. The driver helped me with a hand, which caught my arm in a grip of steel. His strength must have been prodigious. Without a word, the driver shook the reins, the horses turned, and we swept into the darkness of the pass. The night is chill, mein Herr. My master, the Count, paid me to take care of all of you. There is a flask of plum brandy underneath the seat, if you should require it. I did not take any, but it was a comfort to know it was there all the same. Soon we were hemmed in with trees, which in places arched right over the roadway, forming a dark tunnel. The baying of wolves sounded nearer and nearer, as though they were closing round on us from every side. I grew dreadfully afraid, and the horses shared my fear. The driver was not in the least disturbed. He kept turning his head left and right. I must have been asleep, for if I had been fully awake, I would have noticed the approach of such a remarkable place. In the gloom, the courtyard looked of considerable size. The calash stopped, and the driver jumped down and assisted me. Once again, his hand was like a steel vice that could have crushed mine if he had chosen. I stood in silence, close to a great door, old and studded with great iron nails. There was no bell or knocker, and I do not think my voice would have carried through the door or windows. I heard a heavy step approaching behind the door and saw a gleam of light coming. A key was turned, and the great door swung back. Within stood a tall old man, clean-shaven, save for a white mustache and clad in black. He motioned me in with his right hand with a courtly gesture. Welcome to my house. Enter freely of your own will. Go safely and leave something of the happiness that you bring. Count Dracula? I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome, Mr. Harker, to my house. Come in. Night air is chill, and you must need to eat and rest. My people are not available. Let me see to your comfort myself. I rejoiced to see a well-lit room in which a table was spread for supper. Across the room, a mighty hearth held a great fire of logs which flamed and flared. The Count closed the door, set down my bags, and then walked over to open another inner door. You will need, after your long journey, to refresh yourself. I trust you will find all you wish. When you are ready, come into the other room where you will find your supper prepared. I was half famished with hunger, so I made haste to return to the other room. I found supper already laid out. My host, who stood on one side of the great fireplace, made a graceful wave of his hand to the table. I pray you, be seated and sup how you please. You will, I trust, excuse me, that I do not join you. But I have dined already, and I do not sup. No apologies needed, Count. By the way, my employer, Mr. Hawkins, has asked me to give this letter to you. He opened it and read it gravely, and then with a charming smile, he read it to me. Mr. Hawkins writes that he is unable to travel, and that you are a young man, full of energy talents, and shall be ready to attend on me when I will during your stay, and shall take my instructions in all matters. By this time I had finished my supper. We sat in silence by the fire, and I looked towards the window. I saw the first streak of the coming dawn. There seemed to be a strange stillness over everything, but as I listened, I heard as from down below in the valley 
the howling of many wolves. Now listen to them. The children of the night. The music they make. Ah, sir, you dwellers of the city cannot enter feelings of the hunter. But you must be tired. Your bedroom is all ready, and tomorrow you shall sleep as late as you will. I have to be away till the afternoon, so sleep well and dream well. 5th May. I slept until late in the day and awoke of my own accord. When I addressed myself, I went into the room where we had supped and found a cold breakfast laid out, with coffee kept hot by the pot being placed on the hearth. When I was done, I looked for a bell so that I might let the servants know that I had finished, but I could not find one. I got up from the table. I decided to freshen up and shave, but I could not find a mirror anywhere. There wasn't even a toilet glass on my table. I had to get the little shaving glass from my bag before I could shave or brush my hair. After a good shave, I looked for something to read. There was absolutely nothing in the room. Not a book, newspaper, or even writing materials. I decided to try and find a library. The door opposite mine was locked. Further down, much to my delight, I found a library with a vast number of English books, whole shelves of them, and bound volumes of magazines and newspapers, all relating to England and English life and customs and manners. As I was looking, the door opened and the Count entered. I'm glad you found your way in here, for I'm sure there is much that will interest you. His companions have been good friends to me, and for some years past, ever since I had the idea of going to London, have given me many hours of pleasure. Through them, I came to know your great England. To know her is to love her. I long to go through the crowded streets of the mighty London, to be in the midst of the world and rush of humanity, to share its life, its change, its death, and all that makes it what it is. I am sorry that I had to be away from you so long today. But you will, I know, forgive one who has so many important affairs at hand. Of course. May I go as I please in the castle? Yes, certainly. You may go anywhere you wish in the castle, except where the doors are locked, where, of course, you will not wish to go. Oh, I'm sure of this. We're in Transylvania, and Transylvania is not England. Our ways are not your ways, and there shall be to you many strange things. Come, tell me of London, and of the house you have procured for me. The estate is at Perfleet. Carfax is surrounded by a high wall built of heavy stones and has not been repaired for a large number of years. It contains 20 acres... There are many trees on it, which make it in places gloomy. There are a few houses closest at hand, one being a very large house, only recently added to and formed into a private lunatic asylum. I am glad that this is old and big. I myself am of an old family, and to live in a new house would kill me. I love the shade and the shadow, to be alone with my thoughts when I may. Now put your papers away, and I will return soon. I found an atlas, and in it I found little rings marked on it, one on the east side of London, the other two were in Exeter and Whitby on the Yorkshire coast. After supper, I went into my own room and drew the curtains and slept. 6th May. I awoke after several hours of sleep. I hung my shaving glass in front of the window. As I was shaving, I cut myself when I heard the Count say, Good morning. In the mirror, I saw nothing, but looking back, there was. Take care of how you cut yourself. It is more dangerous than you think in this country. And this is the wretched thing. That has done the mischief. It is a foul bobble of man's vanity. He left my room and I went to breakfast. Later, as I wandered around the castle, I noticed that almost all the doors were locked. I began to realize that I was a prisoner. Later, I talked with the Count. Have you written since your first letter to our friend, Mr. Peter Hawkins, or to any other? I have not. Then write now, my young friend. Write to our friend and to any other and say, as it please you, 
that you should stay with me until a month from now. Do you wish me to stay so long? I will take no refusal. I pray you, my good young friend, that you do not discourse of things other than business in your letters. It will doubtless please your friends to know that you are well. Here are some writing materials for you. I trust you will forgive me, but I have much work to do in private this evening. Let me advise you, my dear young friend, that should you leave these rooms, you will not by any chance go to sleep in any other part of the castle. It is old and has many memories. There are bad dreams for those who sleep unwisely. If you be not careful in this respect, then... I quite understand. As I was writing my letters, I looked out the window for some fresh air. As I leaned out, something caught my eye. What I saw was the Count's head coming out the window. I did not see the face, but I knew the man by the neck and the movement of his back. I was in terror when I saw the whole man emerge from the window and begin to crawl down the castle wall, face down with his cloak spreading around him like great wings. What manner of man is this? What, what manner of creatures in the semblance of a man? I fear there's no escape for me. Written correspondence between Mina Murray and Lucy Westenroth, dated May 9th to the 24th. My dearest Lucy, forgive the long delay in writing, but I've been simply overwhelmed with work. The life of an assistant schoolmistress is sometimes trying. I am longing to be with you, by the sea, where we can talk freely and build our castles in the air. I have been working very hard lately, because I want to keep up with Jonathan's studies. When we are married, I shall be able to be useful to Jonathan. I shall be able to take down all he wants to say on the typewriter, at which I have been practicing. I also wish to keep a diary, not one of those two pages to the week with Sunday squeezed in a corner diaries, but a sort of journal I can write in whenever I feel inclined. I shall try to do what I see lady journalists do, interviewing and writing descriptions and trying to remember conversations. I may show it to Jonathan some day, if there's anything worth sharing, but really it is an exercise book. I have had a few hurried lines from Jonathan from Transylvania. He is well and will be returning in about a week. I'm longing to hear all his news. It must be nice to see strange countries. I wonder if we... I mean, Jonathan and I shall see them together. There's the ten o'clock bell ringing. Goodbye. Your loving friend, Mina Murray. Soon to be Hawker. P.S. Tell me all the news when you write. I hear rumors, and especially the tall, handsome, curly-haired man. My dearest Mina, I must say, you tax me very unfairly with being a bad correspondent. I wrote you twice since we parted, and your last letter was only your second. Besides, I have nothing to tell you. There really is nothing to interest you. Town is very pleasant just now, and we go a good deal to picture galleries and for walks and rides in the park. As to the tall, curly-haired man, I suppose it was the one that was with me at the last party. Someone has evidently been telling tales. That was Mr. Arthur Holmwood. Mina... We have told all our secrets to each other since we were children. We have eaten together and laughed and cried together, and now, though I have spoken, I would like to speak some more. Oh, Mina, I love him, I love him, I love him! There, that does me good. I wish I were with you, dear, sitting by the fire and undressing as we used to. Let me hear from you at once and tell me all you think about. I must stop. Good night. Bless me in your prayers, and Mina, pray for my happiness. My dearest Mina, it never rains but it pours. 
how true the old proverbs are. Here am I who shall be twenty in September, and yet never had a proposal till today, and today I have had three. Just fancy, three in one day. Isn't it awful? I feel sorry for the two poor fellows. But I am so happy I don't know what to do with myself. Well, I must tell you about the three, but you must keep it a secret, except from Jonathan. You will tell him, because I would, if I were in your place, certainly tell Arthur. Well, number one came before lunch. I have told you of him, Dr. John Seward, the lunatic asylum man, with a strong jaw and good forehead. He was very cool outwardly, but was nervous all the same. He almost sat down on his silk hat. Oh, Nina dear, I can't help crying. Being proposed to is all very nice and all that sort of thing. But it isn't at all happy when you have to see a poor fellow going away looking all broken-hearted. Number two came after lunch. He is a nice fellow, an American from Texas, Mr. Quincy Morris. He looks so young and fresh that it seems impossible that he has been to so many places and has had such adventures. I suppose we women are such cowards that we think a man will save us from fears and we marry him. <laughs> Mr. Morris doesn't always speak slang. That is, he never does so to strangers, for he is well-educated and has exquisite manners. But he found that it amused me to hear him talk American slang. I do not know myself if I shall ever speak slang. He sat next to me and took my hand in his. Miss Lucy, I know I ain't good enough to regulate the fixings of your own little shoes. Won't you just hitch up alongside me and let's go along down the road together, driving in a double-team harness? I do not know anything of hitching, and I've not been broken to harness at all yet. Lucy, you are an honest-hearted girl I know. I should not be here speaking to you as I am now if I do not believe your good clean grit right through the very depths of your soul. Tell me, like one good fellow to another, is there anyone else that you care for? And if there is, I'll never trouble you a hair's breadth again, but will be if you let me a very faithful friend. Yes, there is someone I love, though he has not yet told me that he even loves me. That's my brave girl. It's better worth being late for a chance of winning you than being on time for any other girl in the world. Won't you just give me one kiss? It'll be something to keep off the darkness now and then. Little girl, I hold your hand and you've kissed me, and if these things don't make us friends, nothing ever will. Thank you for your sweet honesty to me, and goodbye. About number three. I needn't tell you of number three, need I? It seemed only a moment of Arthur coming into the room till both his arms were around me and he was kissing me. I am so happy and I don't know what I have done to deserve it. I must only try in the future to show that I am not ungrateful to God for all his goodness to me in sending to me such a lover, such a husband, and such a friend. Ever your loving, Lucy. Jonathan Harker's Journal, 16th May. Last night, I decided not to heed the Count's warning and fell asleep in a room that was not my own. I awoke to find that I was not alone. I saw three young ladies coming towards me. They had white teeth that shone like pearls against the ruby of their voluptuous lips. A young man. A handsome young man. We've been so long alone in this castle. Go on. You are first, and we shall follow. Yours is the right to begin. He's young and strong. There are kisses for all. Tell us, Jonathan Harker. What do you desire? Who are you? Where have you come from? We know what you desire. You desire pleasure. I am engaged. My fiancée Mina waits for me in London. Ecstasy. No! Pleasure. Please! Get back! Ecstasy. Mina! 
Their words seemed to drown out my instinct for escape from this predicament. Each syllable from the succubi lulled me into paralysis. Blood, passion, blood! As they moved closer, seeming to writhe, entrancing me with their deliberate sensuousness, I felt in my heart a wicked, burning desire that they would kiss me. I could feel the soft, shivering touch of the lips on my super-sensitive skin of my throat, and the hard, dense of sharp teeth, just a touch and pausing there. Sweet it was in one sense, as honey, but with the sweet there was a bitter offensiveness, as one smells in blood. Suddenly a booming voice rang out. How dare you touch him? Any of you? How dare you cast eyes on him when I have forbidden it? Back, I tell you. This man belongs to me. Beware how you meddle with him, or you'll have to deal with me. You yourself never loved. You never love. Yes, I too can love. You yourselves can tell it from the past. Is it not so? Well, now I promise that when I am done with him, you shall kiss him at your will. Now go. Oh, have you nothing for us tonight? Here, to sate your thirst. And with that, the Count threw a small white bag on the floor, which moved as if something living was inside. The succubi attacked it with their ravenous hunger, as the Count swept me up in his terrible arms. Horror overtook me, and I slipped into unconsciousness. 19th May. Last night, the Count asked me to write three letters. One saying that my work here was nearly done and that I should start from home within a few days. Another that I was starting on the next morning from the time of the letter. And the third that I had left the castle and arrived in Bistritz. He knows I know too much and that I must not live lest I be dangerous to him. My only chance is prolonging my opportunities. What date should I put on the letters? The first should be June 12th. The second, June 19th. And the third, June 29th. 25th June. No man knows till he has suffered from the night how sweet and how dear to his heart and eye the morning can be. My fear fell from me as it had been a vaporous garment which dissolved in the warmth. I must take action of some sort whilst the courage of the day is upon me. Last night, one of my post-dated letters went to the post. The first of that fatal series which is to blot out the very traces of my existence from the earth. I have not yet seen the Count in daylight. Can it be that he sleeps when others wake, that he may be awake whilst they sleep? The chance of escape is desperate, but my needs are more desperate still. I shall risk it. Lucy met me at the station, looking sweeter and lovelier than ever, and we drove up to the house at the Crescent in which they have rooms. This is a lovely place, overlooking a river within a verdant valley. Lucy and I sat a while, and it was all so beautiful before us that we took hands as we sat, and she told me all over again about Arthur and their coming marriage. That made me just a little heartsick, for I haven't heard from Jonathan for a whole month. Luckily, I have found something to occupy my mind. A cargo ship, the Demeter, has had all its crew disappear under rather mysterious circumstances. My journalistic interests have been piqued by the investigation of this matter. Captain's Log, the Demeter, 6th July. We finished taking on new cargo, silver sand and boxes of earth. Noon we set sail, east wind, fresh. Crew, five hands, two mates, 
Cook, and myself. 13th July. Past Cape Matapan. Crew dissatisfied about something. Seemed scared, but would not speak out. 16th July. I am somewhat anxious about this crew. Despite them being steady fellows with whom I've sailed before, there have been developments the first mate has brought to my attention. Captain, there's something wrong with the crew. They are crossing themselves and muttering that something is on the ship. A figure of a tall, thin man. Well, it's your job to maintain control despite their superstitions. Yes, I lost my temper with Olgarin and struck him. I expected a fierce quarrel, but luckily the crew remained quiet. Well, keep an eye on him. I don't want disharmony on this journey. One thing, sir. Petrovsky is missing. He never made it to his bunk last night after his watch. 17th July. Later in the day, I gathered the remaining crew. Gentlemen, over the last few days, there have been rumors of a tall, thin man aboard the ship. And with the disappearance of Petrovsky, we had best quell your fears by searching this ship from stem to stern. Excuse me, Captain. I believe this is a folly that would lead to the demoralization of the men. With a man missing, we cannot take this rumor lightly. Lead the men in the search. We left no corners unsearched. The men were much relieved when it was over and went back to work cheerfully. 28th July. Four days in hell. All hands busy with sails in a maelstorm of rough weather. A sense of doom over the ship. We've had no time to sleep, much less wallow in fear. Winds abated by early evening, hopeful for calmer seas ahead. I hardly know how to set the watch with no one being fit to go on. The second mate volunteered first watch to let the others try to sleep. 29th July, another tragedy. By morning watch, no one could be found on deck but the steersman. I am now without a second mate. 30th July. We were nearing England, weary from the storms and peculiar occurrences. Weather fine and all sails set. I slept soundly, only to be awakened by the mate that both men on watch and the steersman were gone. Now, only myself, mate, and two hands left to work the ship. 3rd August. Two days of horrible fog. Midnight awoke hearing a cry outside my port. I rushed on deck where the first mate met me. I heard a cry and ran, but there's no signs of our men on watch. Lord help us. We must be past the Straits of Dover. In a moment of wider fog, I saw North Foreland. And that must mean we are in the North Sea. And if that be the case, then only God himself can guide us. And he seems to have abandoned us. I went to relieve the man at the wheel, and when I got to it, I found no one there. I shouted for the mate, but he appeared wild-eyed and haggard. I greatly feared his reason had left him. It is here! I know it now! On the watch last night, I saw it looking tall and thin and ghastly pale. I drew my knife and it went through it empty as the night air, but is here, I will find it. I will unscrew the boxes in the hold one by one and see. 
With a warning look and a finger to his lips, he dashed down below. There was no use in me trying to stop him. He was stock raving mad. The boxes below are invoiced as only clay to pull them apart would cause no harm. I stayed at the helm, hoping he would come back calmer for his mission. 4th August. It's nearly all over now. The first mate had finally come up, a raging madman with his eyes rolling and his face convulsed with terror. Save me! Save me! You had better come too, Captain, before it's too late. He is there. I know the secret now. The sea will save me from him. It is all that is left. And before I could say a word, he sprang on the bulwark and threw himself into the sea. I dare not go down below. I dare not leave the helm. In this dense fog, sometimes I see him. It. The mate was right to jump overboard, but I am a captain. I must not abandon my ship. I will baffle this monster by tying my hands to the wheel. By doing so, I will save my soul and save my honor as a captain. End of log. Of course. The verdict is still an open one. Authorities haven't cleared the man of the possibility that he himself committed the murders. But the nautical community regards the man simply as a hero. Lucy and I attended the funeral. It was most touching. Every boat in the harbor seemed to be there. Poor Lucy seemed much upset. She was restless and uneasy all the time. She's quite odd in one thing. She will not admit that there is any cause of restlessness, or if there be, she does not understand it herself. But Lucy is so sweet and sensitive that she feels influences more acutely than other people do. I greatly fear she is of too sensitive a nature to go through the world without trouble. The notes of Dr. John Seward, dictated to phonograph. R. M. Brenfield. Sanguine temperament, great physical strength, morbidly excitable, periods of gloom, ending in some fixed idea which I cannot make out. The case of Renfield grows more interesting the more I get to understand the man. He has certain qualities very largely developed, selfishness, secrecy, and purpose. I wish I could get at what is the object of the latter. His redeeming quality is a love of animals, though Indeed, he has such curious turns that I sometimes imagine he is only abnormally cruel. His pets are of odd sorts. Just now, his hobby is catching flies. He has at present such a quantity that I've had myself expostulate. He didn't break out in fury as I expected. He has turned his mind now to spiders and has got several very big fellows in a box. He keeps feeding them with his flies, though he has used half of his food in attracting more flies from outside of his room. But the spiders have become as great a nuisance as his flies, and I have stated he must clear out some of them and gave him the same time as before. A blowfly buzzed into the room. He caught it between his finger and thumb, and before I knew what he was going to do, put it in his mouth and ate it. He asked me a great favor. Could I have a kitten? A nice, sleek, playful kitten that I can play with and teach and feed and feed and feed. We will see. But would you rather have a cat than a kitten? Oh, yes. I would like a cat. 
I only ask for a kitten lest you refuse me a cat. But no one would refuse me a kitten, would they? I will see what I can do. One of the attendants told me he saw Renfield eat birds. Raw. I shall have to invent a new classification for him and call him a zoophagus, live-eating maniac. What he desired is to absorb as many lives as he can. If I gave him the kitten, I do not have to imagine very hard what would happen to it. Mina Murray's Diary, 14th August Lucy and I spent the day on the East Cliff, reading and writing. She seems to have come to love the spot as much as I do. The sun was setting, low down in the sky, dropping behind the kettleness and bathing the East Cliff and Old Abbey in a rosy glow when Lucy suddenly said, unexpectedly, His red eyes again! They are the same! What? There! I followed her gaze, and she appeared to be looking over at our seat where a dark figure was seated alone. I was a little startled myself. For an instant it seemed as if the stranger had great eyes like burning flames, but soon the illusion revealed itself. Lucy, dear, it's just a trick of the light. The red sunlight is shining on the windows of St. Mary's behind us, and there is just sufficient refraction and reflection to make it appear as if the light is moving. I don't like it all the same. It makes me shudder. And not the good way Arthur makes me shudder. Lucy! What a thing to say! I'm sorry. Doesn't Jonathan have the same effect for you? I don't know how to begin to answer that. I'm just so terribly giddy about the wedding. I say, you've taken up your old habit of sleepwalking again. Have I? Yes. I talked to your mother about it. She says we may have to lock the windows. Oh, Pooh. I must be trying to get to Arthur. I can't wait until he returns, but he's been so dreadfully busy attending to some business with his father, the Honorable Lord Godalming. Nina, I sometimes worry about having to ascend to such a title as Lady. I mean, the Westonras are certainly not without status, and there's no objection from Arthur's family. Lucy, you'll make a wonderful Lady Godalming. Besides, I'd say you already act like one. Oh, I suppose. <laughs> Lucy let out a giddy laugh, but then suddenly became very sad and solemn, almost as if in a trance. She didn't speak much on the walk home or during supper that night, and even went to bed rather early. I couldn't get much sleep, which is the reason for this journal entry. My mind has been racing over the last few letters I had received from Jonathan. They were so cold and matter-of-fact, not like him at all. I'm truly beginning to worry. This concludes Episode 1 of Dracula. Thank you for listening to Wausau Community Theater's radio drama production of Bram Stoker's Dracula. The cast in order of appearance is Aaron Kremen as Jonathan Harker, Michael Wettengill as the tall man and Dracula, Cindy Strobel as the old woman, Jefferson Lee as the driver and first mate, Jacqueline Newell as Mina Harker, Mari Erdman as Lucy Westenra, Chad Lurson as Quincy Morris, Sarah Staverin, Rebecca Bonkowski, and Nicole Stevens as the Brides of Dracula, Scott Fritchie as the Captain, Sean Caldwell as Dr. John Seward, and Charles Lynch as R.M. Renfield. This has been sponsored by Central Concrete Cutting and TDS Fiber, with special thanks to Mark Weiss and the Grand Theater of Wausau and Scott Fritchie. 
This is a special fundraiser for Wausau Community Theater during the shutdown caused by COVID-19. As you know, theaters around the country have been forced to close their doors due to this pandemic. Please consider making a donation to keep our community theater alive by going online to wausaucommunitytheater.org and clicking Donate. 